Welcome to The Spawn Chunks, episode number 152 for Monday, August 2nd, 2021. My name is Joel Duggan, and joining me as always is my friend Johnny, or as some of you may know him, the RTX Nightlight Block himself, Pixel Rift. Hello. Hello. <laughs> yeah, I've been uh, been playing around with Amethyst Blocks in RTX. It's been a lot of fun. Um, we've also had a lot of fun in the render distance. Uh, this is the first show of the month, so thank you so much to all of the folks who support us on Patreon. If you are a patron supporter of The Spawn Chunks, you can listen to the render distance, the extended version of the podcast, which you can get at patreon.com slash the spawn chunks. You'll be able to hear more about what our guest has been up to lately, uh, because today we are joined by Henrik Nieberg. Uh, Henrik is a game designer, developer, and coach at Mojang Studios and co-founder of goclimate.com. But most recently, he's been working on ca- uh, terrain generation for the Caves and Cliffs update. And you can find him posting screenshots, videos, and his thoughts from the development process on Twitter at Henrik Nieberg. Henrik, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And uh, yeah, we've had a delightful discussion uh, pre-show, but naturally we're going to be picking your brains about everything that's been going on uh, terrain-wise, uh, both in the recent experimental snapshots and even before that, because of course terrain generation has been part of this update for a little while. Uh, normally when we start off the show, we like to uh, let our guests let us know what they've been doing in Minecraft lately, um, and so obviously we know some of what you've been working on more publicly, but do you get a chance to play Minecraft a lot in your personal life? Is that something you avoid because it's more of a, a work thing? How does the, the balance of that work out for you? Oh, I still love playing Minecraft, <laughs> uh, but I, I play in periods. So there could be a period where I play almost every evening, and then there could be a couple of months where I'm kind of tired of it and I don't play at all. So it, it varies, but I, I have my old server, which turned uh, 10 years this year. Oh, wow. Uh, and I got a bunch of friends and family in there, so sometimes I go in there and hang out. Um, I guess the latest thing was helping my daughter uh, kidnap some glow squids for her uh, nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. That's <laughs> sweet. That's great. And <laughs> as a 10-year-old server, has that world been persistent throughout all of the updates, or is that something you yes. reset? It's it's been persistent. I'm very stubborn about keeping that server going. <laughs> That's great, and what a great perspective to have as well. We heard um, Agnes talk in one of the recent videos about wanting to keep her ten year old world going as well. So yep. it's great We're to know that those. the the, yeah. <laughs> the the guy who's been doing all of the modifications to terrain is is as passionate at keeping that world alive. That's, oh yeah, That's oh great. yeah, <laughs> That's super good. Um, so Joel, uh, how's the Citadel going? What are you up to? Uh, I'm coming close to the end of this zombie geode farm, which I thought was going to be a much smaller project, but it turns out when you've got a lot of redstone and and, um, water mechanics to deal with that it does take a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. Uh, This weekend was mostly decorating the the farm, finally deciding on some block pilots. Went with uh, blue terracotta, which looks purple in the world, uh, which goes very well with the amethyst uh, because of the geode that's nearby and the drown that are coming in from the spawner. Uh, we also went and did some uh, weapon building where we built a sword that had sweeping edge and smite four, I think. I wanted five, but we couldn't find enough um, enough books to do it. And so now it's a, a much more viable source of, of copper. And I haven't been sitting there and, and smacking them constantly, but whenever I walk by a, a full gaggle of drowned uh, sitting on the platform and I give them a whack with the sword, we end up with one or two ingots. So we've got nearly a stack of ingots from just... Every time I walk by while I'm decorating the area, I kind of give them a smack and I end up with some some free iron, uh, which is really cool. Um, I, I really enjoy the break uh, of going from the medieval area where I'm basically 
under that constant kind of build mode of like, how do I blend these textures to make this look as realistic as I can? Because that's the fun challenge that I'm dealing with in, in that area. But when I decorate redstone, which is not something you see a lot, I'm I'm even putting decorative blocks like behind my storage system. And it is visible, like there's a window to the side of it. You can see behind all the chests and stuff. But I've chosen things like uh, smooth basalt and chiseled deep slate. And uh, I've got some lights in the floor, giving like a, a bottom-up spotlight effect with purple glass and that kind of stuff. It's a much more freeing experience because rather than trying to blend textures and trying to figure things out, you're basically just down to picking a color and saying, does this look cool? Yes or no. And if it's yes, then that's fine. And you don't have to worry about matching anything because you're underground. You don't have to worry about the outside of the build because you're underground. So uh, it's been a really fun, freeing experience just kind of putting up the, the decoration behind the redstone. I mean, you're a builder. Do you put, decorate redstone stuff at all? Or is it mostly just hide the farm underground somewhere? A uh, bit of both, really. Like, it totally depends. Right now, uh, I am kind of bucking the trend by building a river biome drowned farm instead of a zombie spawner drowned farm. Um, and that I wanted to be very functional, but it's also going to be close to where I plan to expand my kingdom on Empire's SMP. And so everybody expected me to just build something that was going to be like copper ingot drops and probably fairly concealed underground and instead i built it using the same blocks that i've been using to build the houses around this kingdom uh which is a mixture of stripped oak stripped birch and then sandstone as a gradient um but i built all of that up on the surface around this farm which took a lot longer because of course i had to gather all of the materials for it instead of just building it out of cobblestone or something i'd been able to you know strip mine on mass but I think uh, the end result is looking a lot better. So it's something I always try to do, but then when I'm working on technical projects, I find myself much more absorbed with uh, the technical side of things than I do with making it look pretty, at least at first. I'm also starting to blur the lines between the two and things like my copper aging system that I have set up now where the, uh, the copper is delivered to a bunch of redstone modules by flying machines has that kind of beautiful redstone kind of thing where because it's modular and it's repeating patterns and everything and i'm using slightly more colorful blocks to run the redstone along it ends up looking a lot more interesting as a contraption in itself rather than having to decorate it too heavily to conceal the fact that there is redstone spaghetti under all of it i remember seeing the um the copper farm video and i think i might have sent you a comment privately saying like it looks like uh desert foliage yeah it's it's kind of got a bit of that um especially the magenta terracotta somehow just kind of pops out as being the same color as like those cactus blooms and stuff that i think uh yeah it comes together pretty well <laughs> Henrik, do you identify more as a as a redstone builder, technical farmer? Do you do more aesthetic building in Minecraft or landscaping? What's your normal MO when you do have time to jump into the game? It, it actually varies quite a lot. Uh, during, so during some periods, I, I, I want to build some weird farm or something, and I really go all in on that. During other periods, uh, I'm trying to make a beautiful house for myself. And other times, I'm just exploring the world. So it, it, it kind of it kind of de depends, actually. I feel like taking a, a very varied approach to it is probably a good thing, like be, being almost like a jack of all trades in Minecraft, uh, both as a player and as a developer, because you're touching sort of every part of the game at that yeah. point. So you, you kind of have more of a, a holistic approach to it. And so whenever you start making changes, you know 
what those changes are going to do to affect your own experience of the game. Yeah, it's, it's useful to have as wide a perspective as, pos- as possible. And I think I, I get a lot of questions when I'm streaming or in my video comments about how to make Minecraft interesting again. And I think those often come from people who have one particular thing they like to do. And my answer to that is always diversify. And you can try and do that in ways that help the aspects of the game that you like to do. So if you are a more of a redstone builder, then considering building stuff that complements those farms, if you are... Uh, typically a a builder and you don't like doing redstone then consider building some redstone contraptions or technical things that provide some of the materials for you and that way you get more of a a balance of everything the game is capable of and i find that makes minecraft a much more rich experience it's something that's happened to me over the last few years with trying to create a long-term single-player world and dive into more of these technical projects i find that everything sort of goes together and harmonizes very well when you have that sort of approach to the game. Although I've noticed that as a player, no matter how much I try to be broad, there's always a lot of blind spots. Yeah. So for example, if I'm doing tech stuff, there's there's infinitely more people that are infinitely better at tech stuff than me. Same thing if I'm building things. There's always other people that doing just doing what I do, but a lot more of it. And then there's like blind spots. Yeah. So it's that's why it's so useful with the with, uh, uh, community, you know, videos and stuff, just to see what are people doing? What are they struggling with? What are they... Like a, a concrete example, which was pretty surprising to me, was um, with with when we introduced the 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 honey block. That was a little bit of a sideshow to the to the bees update. It was like, oh, we got this block. What what are we gonna do with it? Um, should it just be a you know building block or what? And that kind of became my task to look at it. And I was like, hmm. At the time, I had just been doing some parkour stuff with my kids on my server. So I looked at the honey block, like, hmm, maybe this thing could be a fun parkour thing. Like you could slide on it. Um, so I prototyped that, concluded that, yeah, this is fun. And then I showed it to my kids. And then one of my kids was like, hey, um, honey is sticky. You should make it work like slime in pistons. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a good idea. So just did that uh, without just as a side thing and put it out in a snapshot. And to my big surprise, what I thought would happen was I thought everyone would be as excited as me about the parkour thing. But the biggest surprise was everyone being really angry at, hey, you put out this honey block. It, it shouldn't stick to slime. It should stick to everything else but not slime. I'm like, What? <laughs> And then once I started realizing why, it made perfect sense. But it turned out that that was apparently a very, very important thing for the technical community that I had no idea about. It was just a blind spot. And it was real easy to fix, but I would I would have missed it if it wasn't for that for that feedback. Oh boy, is it? Because uh, you are now the reason that I am crossing the end void using honey block flying machines. <laughs> in, <laughs> I, I did th- I did that in my hardcore world and gave most of my viewership a heart attack this week because uh, you know I was Whoa. I was I was sat in a boat, uh, you know, trying to trying to cross the void that way, and I had done that on the Empire's server recently, but because I hadn't put a block behind us, uh, me and a bunch of our you know server got on this honey block flying machine that was just one stick of honey <laughs> out to both sides <laughs> and uh, we ended up lagging out and falling off the the flying machine because the server couldn't keep up with our our position and um yeah I, I did the same thing but with slightly more safety measures in place in my hardcore world and i had everybody in my comment section going you're crazy why are you doing this again <laughs> um but yeah i i've been i've been going out there to try and get an elytra before i fight the dragon to kind of change up the formula of the the dragon fight a little bit because i find the dragon fight usually goes the same way and i want to introduce a bit more variety into it and like and you and you and you pulled it off yeah i i got i got all the way to the other side it was very nerve-wracking for me <laughs> but managed to make it in time and miraculously uh, i hopped up onto the island turned around and an end city ship rendered in 
basically you know not too far from my my starting position in the end so wow. yeah i managed to escape the dragon but i'll i'll be back because there's no way to get back to the overworld without killing the dragon at this point <laughs> but uh yeah so so thank you for the honey block is really what i'm trying to say because that's that's really been fantastic to work with especially if it's you know you can you can make slime block contraptions but with slightly different properties and somehow those properties are what makes all the difference that's so cool to see what, what people do with these things it's just mind-blowing well, speaking of taking a break from Minecraft when you get stuck, uh, this week in the news, the Echoing Void has arrived. Released July 28th, 2021, Echoing Void is the latest DLC from Minecraft Dungeons, and it's here and available on Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, Windows PC, and Xbox One. Conquer new challenges, collect epic gear, and fight your way through three new missions using everything from Elytra Gliding to Shulker Floating. Free updates to the base game include powerful new enchantments and the Gauntlet of Gales, a windy new mission that puts your puzzle-solving abilities to the test. The new Minecraft Dungeons Ultimate Edition or the Ultimate DLC Bundle offer a way to get all of the Arch Illager Storyline DLC in one go. And we'll have a link to the Dungeons Echoing Void official launch trailer in our show notes. Johnny, I know you've had some time to uh, dive into Echoing Void DLC. How has the experience been? It's been great. Uh, I played through it on stream over two streams uh, because the first half of the DLC involves you revisiting old levels. Uh, there are six Endermen who have come through, or Enderlings. They're, they're kind of a, a new breed of Endermen, something we've not really seen before this DLC, um, that appear out of the Stronghold portal and take one of the Eyes of Ender with them. It kind of you know attaches into their chest in this very kind of otherworldly way. And you have to go around and defeat these six mini-bosses, uh, which are the giant kind of hammer-fisted uh, Enderman variants, in some of the levels from the base game. So you have to revisit Creeper Woods, Desert Temple, High Block Halls, some of the, the standard levels. Um, and they each basically appear in a side area that is now a permanent part of those levels. So it was a place that maybe was fenced off before or wasn't immediately noticeable or just they've added a corridor to one place that leads to a, a completely different area. And these areas, I find, are really well designed. They've kind of taken some of their cues from the more recent DLC, like the Hidden Depths, the one that kind of introduced ocean uh, environments, and the amount of depth of field tricks they're using and playing around with you know, you're going down a spiral staircase and you can see your destination at the bottom of the level, but you're kind of working your way down, fighting stuff as you go, and this stuff sl starts to swim into focus. It's really, really clever, and it kind of lends a new twist to the levels that seemed a little bit more... Uh, I, won't, I won't say basic, because that's kind of doing the, the design team a disservice, but fairly straightforward before. And now they've they've really learned a few tricks as they've gone on in terms of uh, the level design, the art direction, the environments, and used all of that in adding these new areas to the levels. Um, once you get hold of all of those Eyes of Ender, you go to the Stronghold, and there's an area that you can explore within the Stronghold level itself, but by that point, I just wanted to get to the end DLC levels and see what was going on in the end. And I got through the whole of End Wilds and got very close to the end before I ended up losing all of my lives and ran out of time on that stream. So I, I went back in a second stream and those levels are beautiful. I think it's a really interesting vision of what the end could look like if it was a more lush and alien landscape. There's 
environmental hazards um it, it's more than just a bunch of endermen there for you to fight it's uh you know poisonous plants that release poison clouds if you disturb them so there's stuff like that to avoid there are pools of this void liquid which gives you a a debuff that means it multiplies any damage you take so if you've just stepped into one of these things you need to go and find a place to hide otherwise anything that hits you is going to hit you four times as hard um wow there are some really neat design elements uh there are trees which hang downwards over the void which i think is something i'll have to find a screenshot of because they look really neat and it kind of goes with what we think of as the 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 imaginary physics of the end being slightly different it feeling more like a, a sort of outer spacey kind of environment where gravity doesn't necessarily have to apply the same way um and and last of all the final boss fight is truly epic <laughs> um on on maximum difficulty with one respawn left it was a challenge um and it's a boss fight like the heart of ender fight at the end of the main story where there are multiple phases and different attacks it does it becomes like a a bullet hell environment for a while where there's projectiles firing everywhere and you have to find a a safe spot to hide while the boss is protected it's very chaotic but you know a really spectacular way to to end the dlc and end the uh, orb of dominance storyline they've been working with it was uh yeah 10 out of 10 i i did not get around to gauntlet of gales yet and that's something i'll probably revisit in my own time but this dlc was enough to make me want to play through the entire game again and not just do a melee only <laughs> character like i have been doing i've been uh, you know just, just just hearing this makes me want to go play dungeons right now. yeah yeah <laughs> it's it's great and uh you, you and i actually had the opportunity although i think uh you you popped in a little late for uh the group that i had after the creator song where we were trying to do the uh the no weapons playthrough with multiple characters um <laughs> and so yeah no it's it's clear that the team has put a lot of uh a lot of time and and effort into this dlc and it really pays off uh henrik have you had a chance to uh to play much of dungeons in your own time yeah when it just came out i played quite a lot for a while uh but then i kind of stopped um but now, now I got excited to try again. I think. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I got curious. You, you, I think when you mentioned shulker flying, what what's shulker flying? So, um, there are shulkers around some of the end city environments, which if they attack you, they levitate you just like they do in vanilla Minecraft. So, you know, typically you get sort of stunned ah, right. and you end up taking full damage once you fall back down, and it's usually okay until you get enemies with ranged attacks around you because then they're shooting you in the air and you can't really <laughs> do much about it but there are mechanics throughout the level where you have to encourage the shulker pellets to follow you and then once they reach a door they will kind of swerve to one oh, side wow. and activate a mechanism that levitates part of the door and that opens the door for you so th there are there are puzzle elements to the level where you have to have one of the shulker bullets kind of follow you and those are those are really well designed i think the the one thing they need to fix up is that they they can't always follow you exactly which is probably better for the player most of the time but a lot of the time you have to guide them upstairs and sometimes they just run into the bottom of the stairs and and despawn and it takes a little bit of uh fiddling to make sure it's going the right direction but uh, a pretty satisfying mechanic and a neat way to use enemies to your favor in that environment without jumping in uh minecraft dungeons as we traditionally know it in most video games do you get to use the shulker bullets to like levitate yourself to like another accessible level in in a, in a dungeon or is there anything like that going on with the elytra that you grab about halfway through end wilds there are then barrels of fireworks that you use effectively as launch pads 
And that actually does a really neat thing where the game has been an isometric perspective the entire time, but once you are thrown up into the air like that, it switches to a top-down perspective, and it smoothly transitions into you seeing all of these islands from above and being able to glide between them. So the shulker bullets don't really give you enough levitation to get you off the ground for long enough, and they add that stun effect, so it's more of a, a disadvantage right. for the player. But they have other ways of introducing you flying between the islands, which obviously as people who visited the end in vanilla minecraft know can be fairly you know sparse you you end up finding uh you know the the, the thinnest route through these islands and trying to land on the the nearest available one in case you run out of fly time but uh, yeah it's it's a really well designed aspect to the end dlc and really makes it feel a lot like it's influenced by vanilla minecraft mechanics I haven't had a chance to play Echoing Void. I haven't really had a chance to play any of the, the DLC uh, yet. Big old yet uh, added on that. Because as uh, Henrik mentioned, even just listening to you talk about uh, the end, uh, Echoing Void really makes me want to get in and see it. I love the way things look. The the neon uh, chest plates against the black Enderman with the multiple eyes and all the different attacks and stuff that they do. It looks, it's very... Um, it just it fits that kind of like weird style that Minecraft has, but then also creates some it's like creepy, but cool at the same time, you know, uh, and a creepy, but accessible. Maybe is the best way to, to say it. Uh, the floating abilities look really, really cool. And I don't I don't know whether this is something from another DLC because I'm not as familiar as you might be. But it looked like in the trailer there was like a purple musketeer outfit, like feather in the cap sort of deal. And it just weirdly fits with all the purple. <laughs> Yeah, I don't my, know why. My my favorite armor set from this so far has is one that's a shulker armor. So effectively, you're like wearing a shulker box on your head, and then the lower half kind of becomes the <laughs> the torso, and it's you've just glued shulker elements onto yourself. But it's uh, it's such a neat design. They they always take those uh those kind of like loose ideas of what a Minecraft armor set should be, and and ramp them up until they're very cartoony but super fun. And yeah, it just seems like the kind of thing you would have to improvise as you were scavenging your way through this alien landscape. It's uh, it's really neat. I'm always really torn between playing on the Xbox Series X that I have uh, because I have access through uh, Game Pass Ultimate uh, and playing on the PC where I would then stream the content. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I, I think is really interesting is the uh, DLC bundle uh, or just if you're new to the Minecraft Dungeons, the, the Ultimate bundle because I, I went looking and it is nearly 50% off to get all DLC at once if you haven't yet got into them you're or even if you've picked up one or two and you haven't gotten the other four which is I think my situation it's still cheaper to just go ahead and get the DLC bundle uh Minecraft Dungeons is incredibly affordable for the content that I now know is there with these six DLCs yeah and considering that they've added uh, Gauntlet of Gales to the Howling Peaks area now as well and you've got the Stronghold plus two more levels in the end DLC add all the DLCs together plus all of the hidden levels that you get from the base game and there are something like 50 levels in this game now and I, I remember a lot of the discussion about Minecraft Dungeons when it initially was released about it feeling like it didn't have enough content in the game and I don't think that's something anybody can say about it now. I mean, for for less than the price of, you know, a, a typical AAA uh, game release, you get so much <laughs> if you're buying all of the DLC at the same time. For a, for a $40 game, US prices, it's definitely worth it. And 
if you want to replay on higher difficulty levels, I think that's really where the game opens up because that's when you get access to more armor and weapons and the ability to kind of change up your class a lot more opens up when you get into adventure and apocalypse difficulty so that's where the game lives for me now i'm on the highest possible difficulty setting and uh yeah still punching my way through everything doing millions of damage per hit and stuff it's 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 a great way of making the player feel incredibly powerful at that stage well we obviously want to take advantage of having henrik on the show and talk about the landscape changes that are happening uh in caves and cliffs part two and to kick things off we actually have an email on just that what do you think we uh we get into that email absolutely yes and if you'd like to email the show or give your thoughts on any of the stuff we talk about on uh, each show week to week uh the email address is spawnchunkmail at gmail.com uh, this one comes in from the piano man 89 sing us a song piano man uh and this one uh the subject of this email is caves and cliffs survival just discovered your podcast recently and i've become very interested in following you guys your perspectives and input on minecraft i'm new to the game having only started playing in november of 2020 and since then i've become obsessed with trying to do as much as i can without using creative mode i'm trying to learn as much as i can so that i can feel confident progressing through the game so I decided to try the Caves and Cliffs experimental snapshots to experience all that you've been mentioning on the podcast. I started the world on survival in normal difficulty, and I'm shocked at how much more challenging it is. I've only been playing about five to six hours on this new world, and I didn't run into any iron for a solid three hours of gameplay, and I've died to mobs at least half a dozen times, compared to only once in my other world where I've put in at least 75 hours worth of survival gameplay. Is this level of difficulty normal compared to what both of you have experienced in your trials of the Caves and Cliffs experimental snapshot? I dug down in a stair-step fashion to negative 20 on the y-axis and never encountered a cave. Even after traveling 1500 blocks in opposite directions to look for mountains, I didn't encounter any mountains or caves really at all. Are my experiences normal or does this sound like a really unfortunate exception? Sorry for the long email, but I appreciate you guys taking the time to read and respond. The Piano Man 89 died from unknowingly triggering a TNT trap in a desert temple. <laughs> still still a lot to learn, I see. Um, but yes, this, as far as difficulty goes, uh, I'm sure, Joel, you've had a similar experience to me. Um, this seems fairly typical uh, in terms of, um, you know, the, the challenge of dealing with mobs and... Uh, getting iron and getting geared up for what we think of as the sort of early game caving expedition in current generation. Finding iron closer to the surface has been something we've taken for granted for a while, but I know you've been streaming the snapshot a little bit more than I have, and you uh, you had a bit of a struggle getting hold of iron in the first place, didn't you? Yes, and I actually remember having a struggle in the, the snapshots for 117 as well before they adjusted a few things. Uh, but in the second snapshot, I definitely felt that I called it the iron gate, where you need more iron to go into these big dark caves, but the iron is in the big dark caves to begin with, and so you're just you're <laughs> in this constant battle of like how 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 do I get how do I get there? It's a chicken and the egg problem, uh, and uh, sometimes you luck out and you can go into a village and and beg borrow slash steal iron from uh, the villagers that are there, depending on what's in the chests. Um, but I want to kind of put a big asterisk in in this and say that 
I wasn't planning on this being a permanent world because it is an experimental snapshot. And I was also playing and exploring probably faster than the average player would if they were trying to permanently inhabit a world because I was on stream. I was trying to show off and not, not show off myself, but show off the snapshot, show off the new terrain, explore as much as we could. And so I kind of was on the clock and I could have done more to try and gear up before going into these caverns and having my butt handed to me, uh, but I didn't. And so I, I know that that kind of, not rush, but that kind of, expedited kind of uh, plan affected how I felt about the, the lack of iron early on. Um, but I think after some hindsight and, and a couple of weeks now passed since I've done that, um, the unforeseen side effect of zero light spawning is that there are way fewer mobs on the surface, which is great for new players and good news for players that want to be left alone like builders. Uh, but it means that I I feel more concentrated mobs are happening underground so if you're a confident player that's been playing this game for a while and you're used to what you feel you need before you go caving you have to kind of check yourself and say no no, no. <laughs> there's a lot more happening in these caves than i'm used to and so it's this kind of like you, you go in there uh chest out ready ready to go with maybe a chest plate or a pair of boots and you realize quite quickly no no <laughs> You, mm -hmm. you need a lot more than that. And you need to be a lot more cautious. You can't just rip through the caverns and go around every corner and expect to be able to uh, tackle what, what you're dealing with because there's a lot of things that come down from above. Uh, the caverns are so big you can't see what's happening. Um, Henrik, when it comes to the difficulty that players are experiencing when they're trying to play in survival on the experimental snapshots, is, is that something that was designed to, to be more difficult with the terrain changes? Um, not really. We, we never had any stated goal that the game should become more difficult. Um, however, we do want to provide some strategy to mining in general. Um, so one thing we're hoping to learn now from having shipped these experiment, experimental snapshots is to get these exact conversations going, uh, to hear like, what, what are the, what are the side effects of the terrain generation, the, the higher world height, um, the, the, the darkness changes, all these things together cause a systemic change to the game, right? And I think the jury isn't really in yet because um, I, sometimes I see people put out videos saying, hey, everything is so much easier now. <laughs> you can you can find a massive cave and go to the bottom of the world and find diamonds instantly and, and it's too easy now. Please make it harder. Um, so it seems to be, a, I'm getting kind of mixed messages. Um, another thing which is a bit of a mystery is sometimes when people say it's harder, it's actually just different. Because as a new player, Minecraft is a hard game. You're going to get your butt handed to you the first time you play the game, almost inevitably, right? Mm -hmm. um, if, if you don't know anything, uh, darkness comes and you die, and then you respawn and you die again. And that frustration seems to be, in a way, part of the, the excitement of the game, because then you want to figure out, how do I survive my first night? And what might be happening sometimes is people are used to finding iron in a certain way, and now it's different. And then they have to learn how to do that instead. So I'm not quite sure yet. Is it actually harder or is is it just different? Um, I'm my, my my theory is that maybe we should increase the amount of iron a little bit in general. Um, that's what we're leaning towards. But we'll probably have a conversation with the team after after the vacations. Uh, but in the case in the case of iron, uh, for example, our thinking there has been kind of um, we don't want it to be as obviously easy. To, you'll just find iron sitting around when as soon as you see a cave entrance. Instead, you have to think like, hmm, am I gonna am I gonna go inside a cave? Um, Without iron, am I going to get leather armor before? Or am I going to keep running until I find cave near the surface? Because you can still find, um, sorry, iron. You can still find iron near the surface, but it's it's less common and there'll be smaller veins. 
but it is an option to just you know spend longer time on the surface uh, looking inside cave entrances and you will find iron sooner or later or are, are you going to go mountain climbing find a high mountain somewhere um or go to village so basically we want to give people options and not just serve iron kind of in their face but again it's it, it is a balance and we might have to end up uh, we might end up um, increasing iron a little bit just, just for that reason that's exactly what i like about these experimental snapshots though is the the idea that you have to rethink the approach to the game that you've taken for granted for so long and whether that stays as as part of things or if the terrain sort of gets you know scaled back and some of those things get reintroduced like more more frequent uh, generation of iron it does give you a little bit of a a different approach to starting a new world and i i've spawned several new, new worlds in the second experimental snapshot and found radically different landscapes each time and each one lends itself to a different approach of finding iron so yeah if i yeah if i spawn next to a village i look for golems i look for blacksmiths and I've noticed the villages actually get quite large in some of the experimental terrains. So I've, I've found villages that have two blacksmiths with enough iron and iron armor pieces that I can be confident in, in, in getting a very fast start. Or I generate on a mountain that's, you know, already at Y90 and goes up to, you know, virtually what used to be build height. And so I can go further up and start to find where yeah. those pockets of iron get more and more as you go further up in the world. I think it's it's really fun having that amount of variety. But there will always be people who are, you know, for want of a better term, traditionalists about where they should yeah. be finding this stuff. And I think people have a an expected path through the game at this point that yeah. is going to be, you know, the kind of thing that people will want to stay in the game to an extent while still providing all of those options. And that, that must be a real challenge from a development perspective. It is. And another kind of challenge is variation. Like one design goal has been variation we want it to be fun to explore the world uh, and and i and i think we've kind of nailed that so far just watching all the streams and videos people seem to be having a blast just exploring the world oh yeah uh, which which is you know which was my personal experience when developing was like wow i keep getting distracted just exploring the world which was a good sign but the downside to that is that means that you know that you might if you might happen to spawn in a world as a new player that just is really hard much much harder than for other people like in this case, couldn't find any caves, couldn't find any iron. That could happen, and that and that would be a very unfortunate experience for that player if that happens. So we're not quite sure where where to go with that. I think it's just a trade off we have to navigate. Because on the one hand, we could make the world perfectly predictable. You'll always find this, and you'll find that, and it'll look like this, and it'll always be a, a certain experience. But that'll be kind of boring once you've had that one experience. Or we do it like we're doing it now with incredible amount of variation. But then there's a certain risk that the game may be too easy or too hard in some cases. Yeah, I when I was reading this email through and it said not finding any caves within 1500 blocks, I thought that is <laughs> extremely bad luck. That's unusual. Um, That's unusual. Yeah, and and I know surface cave entrances were sort of reduced a little bit in the the second experimental snapshot, but even then to have not found any route into the underground is yeah. is quite bizarre. Yeah, and they were just a tiny bit reduced, barely noticeable. Yeah. However, we do have an issue we still still have some issues with with flooding. So that is, I'm pretty sure we're going to fix for the next uh, snapshot where um, we're we're looking for ways to make it possible for fewer caves to be uh, flooded when they're when you're near coastlines. Um, but that's also a trade-off because if we if we say that no caves are flooded, then then a that's kind of boring, <laughs> but also b then you get really messed up coastlines. So there's a lot of trade-offs we're having to figure out there. Well, uh, let's let's drill down into some of the more detailed stuff we wanted to ask about uh caves and cliffs part two terrain generation 
Um, but first of all, uh, I, I kind of had a question that's sort of related, but um, back in April, obviously, the team announced that the Caves and Cliffs update was going to be split in two uh, to kind of ensure quality, uh, to have adequate time to cope with the technical challenges. Now, a lot of those stuff things are coming to light and we're seeing exactly what those technical challenges are. And also to avoid having an impact on team health, avoid crunch and, and yes. that kind of thing. Um, and I'm sure a lot of this discussion is going to focus more on the technical side and, and the terrain generation. But before that, I'd like to ask, how is the team? Um, and how has everyone managed to stay kind of focused and, and positive uh, while they continue to work from home? Because I, I believe you all still are working from home rather than yes. returning to the office. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess it's two questions there. One is about the, I guess, team health in light of the split and all that. Um, it was really, it was really a, a major impact, positive impact on the team health to do the split because we were really stressing out um, because we basically had a scope that was too big for us for what we could do in that time, um, which we which we knew was a risk. Um, changing the height of the world was a gamble because it messes with the core of the game, um, and then it ended up being you know really really complicated and took most of the team's effort for a long time. That's when we realized that okay, we can sort that out. But then we also want to, you know, if we if we were to ship everything as planned on time, then we would have to cut so much scope. So we would be very disappointed, and we think the players would be disappointed too. Um, so we kind of realized just by the process of elimination that well, we can't ship. We don't want to ship um, uh, Caves of Cliff with a majorly reduced scope, but we also don't want to stress out the team because that's just not a good idea for any reason at all. Um, both, both ethically, but also for the game itself, is just a bad idea. Uh, so we pretty much just just did the math there and like, okay, we we have to, you know, we have to we have to split this. Um, and we preferred not to delay it because we knew that there was a lot of player that players that would appreciate, you know, the the non world gen parts of it. So we figured let's ship that, make those players happy, uh, give people something to play with over the summer, but also take that part off our chests. So, you know, that that's shipped. We don't have to think about that anymore. Now we can focus entirely on world generation. So it's definitely, I think, the right decision. Um, but in terms of stress, well, it was it was stressful also after because we had to do a lot of you know voodoo to be able to do the split. We had, since we had to, yeah, the game really wasn't designed to be split in that way. Uh, it was supposed to be one thing, so it was it was a bit tricky both uh, technically but also process wise how we organize our work because we wanted to continue doing world gen stuff in the background. Then we had to handle some technical stuff around how we how we organize our work. Uh, but once we got past that, we started getting near, closer to the summer. I think we got over the hump and, and then plus people started having vacations and, and we shipped 117. So now I think we're in a much better state in terms of stress. People are more rested, they're more relaxed and a lot more focused. Um, and, in, and in terms of, um, oh yeah, I can also mention that we were really, really, really moved by the community reaction when we talked about this because we were kind of worried. Are people going to get really angry and sad that we split this update? And of course, some people were disappointed, but overall, the amount of support given to the team was was a overwhelming and we're really happy to see that because we kind of want to encourage also other game companies to just not crunch because it, it is a bit of a disease in our industry that companies tend to just say hey let's just throw hours at the problem and just burn everybody out and build something of bad quality and we figure we think it's better to just take it easy don't stress build better stuff um uh, think long term and we're happy that the community kind of um supported us in that yeah, around the time of that announcement, I remember us covering it on the show and Joel and I both said it was just very well communicated and one of the things that's been great uh, with Mojang over the years is the transparency about the development process and the way developers will actively, you know, interact with the community, whether that's, you know, on Twitter, on Reddit, they'll pop into streams, they'll kind of check in with players, but also now 
uh, from a very personal standpoint, everyone knows that this is a a weird time in <laughs> in in everybody's lives. You know, the pandemic affecting everybody, and yeah, obviously, like you know, we all care a great deal about the team, and the team has done a great job in presenting themselves to the general public as human beings. Uh, yeah, and, and so I I think a lot of that really contributes to uh to how that announcement was received and yeah i i think the minecraft community in general is one of the best communities i've been a part of in terms of the community understanding what the developers are doing to improve the game and and to make sure that everyone stays healthy as a a priority for the community as well as mojang themselves yeah it's it's really a win it's a win-win thing we're, we're all on the same team we just want to make a great game right so yeah absolutely and uh yeah but it's but it's but in terms of the, the pandemic um and that's been a challenge of course just like for for all companies uh we were 100 percent co-located and so suddenly we're 100 percent distributed from one day to the next um but given like it actually worked out better than i thought um i've done a lot a bit of you know part of my job was also coaching help us figure out how, how to work together and um, it worked better than I thought to be, to suddenly work distributed. Some things even work better um, than when we're in the same room. But overall, I would say it's been negative because working in a distributed fashion is fine, but but being forced to do it all the time is a problem. We would have liked to at least once in a while get together to do workshops and stuff. Um, not being able to do that has been has been a challenging. Plus, from a psychological perspective, it's it's pretty kind of undemocratic in a sense. When you when you work at office, most people have a similar kind of we're in the same place, working under the same conditions. But working from home, some people like me, I'm pretty lucky. I have a big house and I have a room with which which where I can like a like a home office. Uh, I have a good working environment at home. But a lot of people don't. So maybe they move to Sweden from another country. They have a small apartment, and then suddenly they're stuck in that small apartment. Um, or maybe they have small kids in the house, or or a spouse that is also needs to work from home, and they're you know disrupting each other. So there are, for some people, it's just a pain to work from home, and having to do that all the time is is uh, really hard. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to uh, to us to a, a world where people can choose more. Like sometimes we work together physically, sometimes we work from home, sometimes a bit of both. I think that'll be good. Yeah. When we spoke to Brandon on the show, he was talking about having just moved to Stockholm from Australia, and <laughs> and, yeah. and then a couple of months later, everything shuts down, and he has to stay in. And he's like, I don't know where That's anything crazy. is. Like, I still have to get kind of settled into this space. And you know, for yeah. for such a big move and the first move of that kind he'd ever done, it must be uh, yeah a tremendous strain. And I'm just hoping that you know he has a, a long history working at Mojang and will be able to you know actually interact with everybody. <laughs> Recoup that yeah. office environment again, but, but I will say though that I mean, at the end of the day, we are an, an IT company. We we can work at home, perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. um, so I I really feel uh, empathy to all these other jobs people have. Like let's say you work at a restaurant or you're a taxi driver or something else where you basically can't work from home. Yeah, um, and then those their lives get completely completely dis 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 disrupted. So in, in a way, we don't really have any right to complain at all. I mean, we still have a job. We can still work effectively um, from home. Yeah, always good to keep that perspective for sure. I'm not sure if you can say, but um, provided th there's a future where COVID-19 is uh, less of a concern, do you feel that there's going to be um, some opportunities for, for Mojang to have people that work from home and come into the office either on specific days or specific um, events or for specific team meetings, that kind of thing? It, do you think that's going to be an option rolling forward or is it going to be trying to get everybody back into the office? I, I think all options are on the table. So we're probably going to do it. Like, what I like about this organization is we're very much into experimenting with how we work. 
So nothing is taken for granted. Um, and that includes this. So once we get the chance to go back to the office, the big conversation is going to be, okay, how much should we be at the office? Uh, how do we, you know, who works from home when? Um, and try to find the sweet spot. You know, what kinds of things are best to do from home? What kind of things are best to do in the office? Um, per, 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 personally, in my own head, um, my like what I think might be the most effective is to have a few days that are kind of uh, by convention office days. So people try to be at the office during those days because then you know that everyone everyone is around. You can have those spontaneous conversations. And then maybe a few days that are more like uh, um, work from home days. So that means that if you're going to choose which days to be at home, which days to be at office, then most people will choose the same days, which I think is good because my experience is that working fully collocated is awesome. Working fully distributed can also be awesome, but the mix can be quite disrupting. When you have three people in the same room and two people on a screen, that I find doesn't work very well because then you have three people who are in the same physical room and the two other people are in another room because they're in a digital room <laughs> and then you're really not in the same room and it kind of gets complicated. Yeah, I used to work in animation and television uh, before video calling was as nearly as commonplace as it is now. It was possible, but it really wasn't as, as, as common. There certainly was no Zoom. Uh, and yeah. uh, we used to have some animators would work from home, sometimes purely because the studio that I would be working at would be usually a small studio. And we just didn't have the space. You know, you'd need to hire 20 yeah. animators and you've got space for 15. You've got to send five home. And those five that would be asked to or asked if they'd be comfortable working from home would be usually the more senior animators or a few of them that we knew we didn't necessarily have to handhold or teach or needed a lot of approval. We would just like, look, you've been in the industry for a few years. We know you're, you're going to be okay to, to do this from home. But there was always that disconnect because their revisions would be either done via email or they'd have yeah. to come in and sit down with a supervisor and go over things. And so it was, it was really challenging, but at the same time, there was also you know things in the in the office where it would be harder to get work done sometimes because then you get a bunch of people socializing and it just it, yeah. it ends up being a little bit too casual sometimes it was also like a bunch of artists and cartoonists and very liberal kind of business environment so it wasn't as as regimented as as um as some places might have been back then this was like the early aughts but um yeah that's really interesting to to hear like the the benefits and the push and pull and and i i definitely agree with you whenever i've been in a situation where it's been like two or three people live and, and another two or three people digitally it's always really challenging there's always something that kind of throws you end up being more concerned about how the meeting is going from a technical yeah. standpoint than the actual yeah. <laughs> content of the meeting it's exactly. always a little bit tricky like someone's drawing something on a whiteboard can you guys see that now like oh wait a sec let me turn the camera and then uh i can't hear you and then but but yeah if we're all distributed all if if all of us are, are from home then we're all in the same room in a sense because we're all in the same digital room we have the same video call we have the same google doc or miro board or whatever and then I, that, that I can find, I find can be really effective, actually. Yeah, I mean, this this podcast probably wouldn't exist without Google Docs. So I yeah. feel like we'd <laughs> we'd have such trouble uh, exchanging show notes were it not for all of these great solutions out there. Emailing back and forth. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, so let, let's get back into talking about the uh, the changes to terrain, because I know this is what a lot of our audience is going to be interested in. Um, so for the more technical audience, for people who probably know what you mean when you say a noise map, um, can you explain <laughs> uh, what's different about the experimental terrain generation? Because biomes are now independent from terrain height and shape, and there's a little bit more going on under the hood there than there was previously. So uh, do you want to give us basically like a, a, a layman's version of that for the folks listening? Sure. 
So a bit of background there. Um, when, with the Nether update, we introduced a new way of biome placement called multi-noise placement. Um, and I believe uh, uh, Slice Climb has made a good video introducing it. But basically, the way that works is uh, that throughout the world, um, there are a number of noise fields. We call them weird things such as uh, humidity and temperature and continentalness and stuff. And that means that at any given point in the world, there are basically uh, hidden values. They're actually visible now on the F3 screen, I think, nowadays. But um, so uh, in this particular position here, uh, there might be uh, humidity might be minus 0.5 and temperature might be positive 0.3. And then I travel for a little bit and temperature gradually goes up or gradually goes down. So it's basically like a five-dimensional uh, space of, of numbers there, um, which vary gradually through, through Perlin noise. And then we basically configured different biomes to live in different configurations of those numbers. Um, and, and that's how we decide whether there should be like, a, um, uh, what's it called? Crimson forest or something. Um, but the, and this way of placing biomes, we, we knew that when we made the caves and cliffs update, we would need to change how we place biomes anyway, because we need to have 3d biomes, right? And we need to be able to have a place where there's a forest above surface and let's say dripstone caves below. And that's completely new. So we had to revisit biome placement anyway, and decided to go with multi-noise because it just it's just more it's just easier to work with so and in conjunction with that um we kind of had to revisit in general how we place biomes we also had a had an insight when we were uh, making the cave biomes the lush caves and dripstone caves because when we were making those biomes like we we realized that normally when biomes are placed in the world the biome decides the shape of the terrain so it it is it is configured at the biome level that Let's say plains is configured to be quite low elevation and quite flat, uh, while let's say forest is going to be quite low elevation but a little bit more rough terrain. And from a technical perspective, when I say rough terrain, I basically mean more 3D noise. So 3D noise basically is like by 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 default, uh, the world is just a big random mess. Um, we use the word cheese noise for caves to, to sit, to describe how this looks like. Think of a big Swiss cheese with big holes everywhere. That's default, how the overall looks like. But then that, that random mess is kind of pushed down, um, and, uh, biased in such a way that a surface will form at some point and below that surface will be solid and above that surface will, will be air and different biomes will squeeze that 3d noise, uh, in, in different ways. So planes will squeeze most of it away, but, in the opposite extreme, shattered savanna leaves most of the 3D noise in place. So with shattered savanna, you get a, a glimpse into what the actual world generation looks like mm -hmm. before we do all this, this offsetting. But anyway, um, so biomes control this, which means that if we wanted to have, let's say, uh, a forest that is not low elevation, we want forest to be in a hilly area, we literally had to make a new biome called you know, Birch Forest Hills, for example, which is the same exact biome, but with another number. <laughs> for the terrain shape. And it, this was fine, but now we got to the point where when we were going to place these underground biomes, these numbers didn't make sense anymore. What is elevation for a cave biome that's underground? So we kind of had to rethink and, and we made this decision after a while that let's have the cave biomes adapt to whatever terrain they find. So let's, let's, let's make the caves generate independently of biomes, like the cave shapes and everything. And then the biomes will just be placed independently of, of whether they're big or large caves there. And they'll just adapt. And, and that reduced the amount of code we had to write, but also gave us basically infinite variety because you could find a, you know, 
a lush cave inside a tiny, tiny, tiny little area or a massive mega cave, both of them can contain lush caves. We just have to be a bit smart with the, the, the feature placement so they'll adapt to whatever is there. And the result of that was really positive. We were like, wow, this is really cool. We got really incredible variation here. And we didn't need to create a bunch of special, you know, large lush caves, small lush caves, etc. It's just one biome which just adapts. So inspired by that, we we just we kind of realized that since we're now placing big mountains on the surface, we need to think about how we place biomes and how we can make that less those mountains less kind of um clash with it with the terrain. Like can we make the, the terrain generally hillier first? And then have a big mountain instead of just having the big mountain plop down on existing terrain. So how can we make this kind of fit in? And that's when we decided that, hey, let's take this, this little trick we did of decoupling you know, the biome from the, from the terrain shape. And let's apply that in, in, uh, in, above the surface as well. So that's kind of where we ended up, what we ended up doing. So we basically said that instead of saying um, the, the multi-noise parameters have decided that this is going to be jungle because it's a humid area and a, and a hot area. So that means jungle. Um, and, and because it's a jungle, it's going to be flat. Instead, we say uh, these multi-noise parameters decide that it's a jungle, and the same multi-noise parameters also decide that it's going to be a hilly area, um, and therefore we get a hilly jungle. <laughs> and, it, and this gives us just an incredible variation. Sorry, what were you going to say? No, and it's, it's so fascinating now walking around the terrain and seeing how different some of these biomes look that haven't had that terrain variation before it's um i've got a couple of screenshots where there is a jungle just on the side of one of the new mountains and yeah. <laughs> and and that's the kind of thing that seems completely alien to players who've been you know playing this game for the last decade because we're used to the way the world works now and i think yeah this kind of feeds back into what we were saying earlier about it providing new challenge and disrupting the way players typically expect the game to go and i think that's one yes. of the things that's made exploring these experimental snapshots so fascinating for players is because minecraft is doing stuff that we're not used to it doing and yeah. for people who've had this much experience with the game that's the stuff that really gets us fascinated again it is and but of course as with everything it comes with challenges right so, so for example, we, we, although we've decoupled the biome from terrain shape, we, we don't want to, like, technically they're completely decoupled. We, we, we could make them completely independent, but we have through config, configuration made them slightly coupled um, by just saying that, like, let's say, for example, um, meadows, right? Meadows is a biome that is intended to be used at higher, higher elevation. Um, so kind of like a plains, but higher up to let you overlook the world, but also have maybe a, a mountain range behind you. We were inspired by Sound of Music, right? Yeah. <laughs> how, could we, how could we make these metals? Um, so, so that biome does have an opinion on terrain shape. But instead of saying that the biome is going to make the terrain that shape, we just configure the biome so it happens to coincide with that terrain shape. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's it's great seeing the way those meadows form up and whether they kind of lead up into a mountain or the ones that Joel and I have found when we've been exploring have been usually like they've they've almost had a donut shape surrounding a basin with a different biome yeah. in it <laughs> and the, the amount of different configurations that those form even though the the sort of plateau that they form itself is usually like you know a, a somewhat predictable shape it's still providing yeah. those experiences that seem familiar to players once they've gone through these worlds a couple of times but you know they, yeah. they've still got hidden surprises in them as well and and that's again the, the challenge of variation because what's nice is we get the, a lot of variation because it's not an exact science um we can't configure exactly how a, how a biome will look like um but we can 
configure them so that it roughly coincides with terrain shape in some cases. For example, you'll mostly find you know snowy slopes and um, like uh, the, the the new peak biomes. They're going to coincide with peaky terrain, mm-hmm. which is great. But it's not always going to be 100% mapping. So sometimes you will find meadows that are quite low down. Sometimes you might find what technically is a peak biome, but it might be in lower terrain. And we don't really have 100% control as we had in the past. Uh, the, uh, the advantage to that is, you know, even as developers, I'll get, I'll, <laughs> we'll get surprised like, whoa, look what just happened. And as long as the majority of those surprises are positive surprises, then that would offset those times when you get something looking really ugly, hopefully. <laughs> because of the way that you're describing the relationship between the terrain generation and the biomes, when it comes to making adjustments in the background, how finite and and how much control do you have over that? Is it a matter of like, adjusting these numbers in a way that you think is going to give you the results that you want and then just having to go into Minecraft and see what it looks like? Or do you have more of an idea of what to expect when you make those adjustments? So this is something that it's kind of a a skill that we've had to build up. In the beginning when I worked on this, I really didn't know what I was doing. So I would poke a number and see what happens and be like, oh, that just happened. Hmm. What if I poke it in another direction? Oh, now this happened. (laughs) But then as you work with it, you have to well start to understand the math more properly. And then you start after a while getting to a point where I can predict that, hey, I want the rivers to be wider. I think I should change this number. Um, But if I change that number, I suspect this side effect might happen. So I need to go look for that. And that's kind of a skill that we're trying to build up as as a team. But tooling helps a lot too, because uh, we don't want to have to rely on experience and guesswork. We we want people to be able to see. uh, We we don't want to just have, you know, one or two people be able to do tuning because they've gone through all the, all the, all the, all the, you know, hard work of learning this. We want pretty much anyone to be able to sit down and say, hey, I'm going to play with these numbers and see what happens. So we, we've built up some tools, mostly internally so far, but maybe we can make some of them external later on. But basically visualization tools that show us the biome distribution, um, all the multi-noises, uh, the elevation map. And looking at that map, I can change a number and reload it immediately and see that, okay, all the rivers got wider. So I don't have to actually start up the game to see it. And that saves a lot of time. But also, also various diagnostic tools where I can look at a, like a, a profile of how the terrain shape looks like from the side. And then if I change a number, I can see that, okay, now all the mountains seem to be steeper. But at the end of the day, we have to play the game also. So it's, it's typically when I'm, I've been working a lot with this uh, past few months and found a pretty good workflow, which basically is I, run, I have two computers. Uh, on one computer, I'm, I'm running the development environment. On the other computer, I'm running the latest snapshot. Um, it's two separate computers because of performance. It's running all this stuff. It just takes so much uh, performance from the computer. So, so and, and then then I have a side by side view, um, and on my development computer, I'm running the development environment and all these mapping tools to show me what's going on, and then I basically make a list of things I want to fix. Like for example, um, I want uh, uh, mesas to show up properly, uh, badlands to show up on on plateaus and not just random splotches everywhere. So then I would look for some places in the world where it looks really bad. And the community has been really helpful. Sometimes I put out a tweet and say, hey, people, can you show me where this happens? And then I get 100 answers and seeds and coordinates. It's super awesome. So I just take some of those examples, uh, fly to that place on uh, on both computers, the same place. And then I look at, okay, why did this happen? Why did this ugly badlands show up in the middle of a jungle? And I start analyzing what, what happened. And once I understand that, okay, it's because of this noise or because of that thing, then I form a hypothesis for, well, if I change this value, is it going to improve it? I change a few values, try it until that looks good. Then 
I fly around randomly on both computers to look at what have I messed up? Because <laughs> quite often fixing one problem causes another problem. So it's a lot of just flying around, looking at the world and saying, hmm, damn it, now all the mountains are smaller. Did I really want that? And um, it's, it's, it's hard work. It's kind of tricky, but it's also quite fun and quite relaxing because I'm sitting there flying around, exploring the world um, and making it better. I was I was going to use the uh, the matrix analogy of seeing the code, but I realized how silly that sounds talking to a developer because that is literally what you're doing. But at, it at is that, literally. At, but at, but <laughs> yeah. at, but at that point, you are just kind of what um, once you have enough experience with it, you can sort of navigate that stuff by feel. Um, a little bit, but, yeah. but then um, going back to what you were saying about you know making sure that everybody can do this, I, I think that's that's a really exciting prospect. If some of the tools you use internally are at a state where they can be you know made available to the community i think that's an option that excites a lot of people because i've I've definitely seen a lot of people now that terrain is being worked on in in ways like this speculating about whether or not world customization options are going to exist in minecraft like they used to in the past where you could create a custom world there are a lot of sliders you could drag around and numbers you could change to adjust the parameters which i think has moved over to custom dimension data packs more now uh but i've seen a lot of people kind of wondering about whether that's the right thing for players because it's maybe a little less user-friendly or maybe more daunting to get into at first yeah it is it is uh, it is hard like we we in a, in a perfect world, we'll be able to make all the numbers, all the secret numbers in the code visible, yeah. you know, in config files, which would be great. It's just a matter of time, right? Yeah. But if we can make everything visible, then players can tinker with it. But without the tools, then you'll have to be a genius to be able to do something cool with yeah. it because it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I really hope we can make some of the tools available, um, but we'll see. I can't promise anything there. Yeah, I, I definitely remember trying to create a couple of custom world presets in the past, dragging one slider just a little bit too much, and then suddenly most of my world is ocean and there are just rock spikes yeah. all the way to build limit. And I go, what, what, <laughs> exactly. what did I do? What did ad- Why? Adjusting yeah. that one number did so much. So yeah the, yeah, the amount of fine-tuning and control you must have to have over these processes is kind of mind-blowing to, uh, to, yeah. to me as a, a casual approach to uh to, to world generation but when it comes to ui stuff i guess a bit of a kind of we, we, we want to be mindful of how we spend our time mm-hmm. so if we focus on making the game fun that's kind of number one but then we want to make as much stuff customizable as possible that would be i guess number two but then making a fancy gui on top of it is is a distant third or a sure. tenth somewhere down the line yeah. because it's something that that the community could do as well so, so it's kind of like, what are the things that we need to do? What are the things that actually anyone can do? Then maybe um, instead of us spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to make this this UI work, we just make all the data available for, for, as, as a starting point. And then we'll see, you know, if anyone gets around to making a nice UI for 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 changing the numbers. And and people have done fantastic things either with modding the game or with data packs at this point, just because those uh, start those those details those kind of internal things have started to be surfaced a little bit more so i think yeah. i think it's it's a good approach and the fact that obviously mojang is still like a relatively small team and people have to kind of fine-tune things and work on stuff individually means that it can't develop in leaps and bounds in the same way but you're you're working on a, a base game that is still such a great experience on its own that people can then start to imprint their own ideas onto later yeah. You mentioned having two computers in the office, one uh, running the development uh, world and the other one running in the snapshot. Uh, what kind of performance challenges 
have surfaced by adding 128 blocks of height to the entire overworld. Uh, I know that there hasn't been a lot of, uh, or any um, optimization just yet. And, and Mojang has been very clear about that in, in the snapshots, but what challenges have you seen surface? Oh, it's it's a huge challenge. It's the, it's the number one challenge of the whole update, I would say, uh, because everything in the game, well, first of all, the technical challenge to get it to even work because everything in the game was built, was hard-coded on, on that existing world height. So changing the world height just broke everything everywhere. And, and we're still playing whack-a-mole, catching little <laughs> bugs here and there. Uh, so that was kind of number one, was to get, get it to work at all. And number two is to make it scale. And that's, I guess, what we're working on right now and have been for, for quite some time on both both platforms. Um, and, uh, well, mainly, I guess, the problem is that chunks are just vertical, right? When you load a chunk, you load everything from top to bottom. In a perfect world, the game wouldn't be designed like that. Uh, why would we generate the, a chunk at the bottom of the world if you can't see it or interact with it? Uh, but that 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 would be another war to fight in the future because now that that's so deeply built into the game that it's going to be hard to change for this update. Uh, but that means that right as it is right now, when you run around the world, it's going to load the full vertical you know chunks, everything from top to bottom, and. Uh, yeah, there's lots of challenges around. Can we can we you know do little tricks? Can we avoid at least rendering some things that aren't visible, um, things like that? But also, just as there's more stuff going on, right? If if you're, uh, if you're you know near a mountain range, there's just about twice as much uh, places where mobs can spawn and where there are you know things ticking and water flowing and things happening. So we just need to just optimize the hell out of this, and that's kind of what we're trying to do. And it's the kind of thing where you also have to consider once players start building it in this, there's going to be redstone logic happening in some of these chunks yep. as well. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the resigned sigh almost starts to come through and like, yeah, yeah, yeah play, players are going to have to mess with this sooner or later. So Yeah. And in even just the world generation, uh, because there's, you know, all these caves, for example, it's a whole new layer of things being generated. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just, just just more more going on both during world generation and and while playing the game. So we're 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 optimizing it. What I guess the good news is we are we are making some progress there. But uh, uh, I wouldn't say we're 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 not out of the woods yet on this. We're still uh, <laughs> a, a little bit worried about it, but well, ho hoping to. We have, we have a lot of people focusing on it, so I guess that's that's positive. Yeah, and ho <laughs> and hopefully you've still got plenty of of time to work on that. Um, as far as the current experimental snapshots go, I, have you been surprised by? any of the feedback you've seen from these snapshots? Were you expecting some features to be controversial that have just been embraced wholly by the community? Or is there anything you thought, yeah, this is a an obvious win that the community has gone, actually, we're not quite so keen on this. Can you think of any examples there? Um, well, mainly getting those snapshots out was a massive relief because we were really worried about, like, since we have a lot of tech stuff to sort out, um, we don't want to get to a point where we don't, we where we can't snapshot until like September, and only then do we start getting community feedback on all these major changes. So we were really keen on. That's why we ended up doing this kind of weird thing with the experimental snapshots. We're like, hey, let's let's just cheat the system and say let's put this out in existing shape on the side while we sort out technical stuff, so that we at least can get feedback on the on it from a gameplay perspective while working on other things. So that's been very useful. But in terms of feedback. Um, Mostly the feedback has been stuff that I expected people to say, uh, which is kind of a relief. Um, I was positively surprised because, I mean, I, I really like the new world, Jen, but I'm kind of biased. <laughs> <laughs> Having been living inside this for like a year. But I was really kind of like, um, 
a little bit worried, like what are players going to say? Are they going to like it as much as we do? Or are they going to say, no, we're, you know, this is too different. This is too weird. Um, but I was really happy to see that people in general seem to really like both the caves and the mountains and the new terrain shapes. Um, so that, that was a major relief, which just confirmed that we're on the right track here. The whole approach of changing how we generate the terrain and how we place biomes, that approach seems to be viable from a gameplay perspective, which is good. Uh, there's a lot of things to improve and the things people have mentioned, such as, you know, microbiomes showing up here and there and flooding of caves sometimes. Um, other things, uh, and of course performance, these are things we knew, but it's very good to get confirmed that it's not just us um, thinking that. So yeah, uh, overall, yeah, overall not terribly surprised and mostly relieved um, that players seem to like the stuff where the direction things are heading. One of the questions we had from uh, a listener uh, was actually focused on uh, the landscape and their experience doing landscaping in Minecraft and how, uh, in their words, tedious it could be. Uh, and they had mentioned that they've heard that Mojang wants to stay true to the gameplay principle of always placing one block at a time and how large scale projects can just be really daunting to, to a player. And now with the new scale of 118, uh, they were concerned that players might get turned off by just so much material to move around. Is, is that a concern uh, with the increase of the, the world, not just from a technical standpoint, from, from a gameplay standpoint? Uh, do, you, do you worry about maybe creating an environment where the players feel daunted by what's in front of them? Well, well there's, I guess, a, a higher level question about that, which is new versus old, right? Uh, we're changing the way the world looks. And this is a hugely popular and successful game where people are used to the way it normally looks, right? And they've there's all this gameplay that is optimized for the current way Minecraft works. So one of the big challenges, how do we strike the balance between the new and cool stuff versus the old and recognizable Minecraft that everyone has come to love? That's really hard. Um, and our strategy has kind of been to provide both by just having variation in the world. So if you prefer a, a, a you know a part if you prefer a flatter terrain that looks more like Minecraft usually looks like, you should be able to find that. I think you can find that even now. You can find large areas that don't have any of the new mountains. And then I guess the only thing you would need to do is go exploring until you find it. Um, and then it, it, but while well, other players will be like, no, the, the the old is boring. I want the new crazy mountains. Then you know if you search far enough, you'll you will find them. <laughs> But of course, some things are unavoidable. If you are the kind of player who wants to clear out a whole chunk down to the bottom of the world, that is going to be a royal pain now because of the deeper <laughs> world and deep slate. It's just the cost of this update. And if that's going to be a, a blocker, then you'll basically have no choice but to either go back to an older version or, or use a mod. Um, but hopefully most styles of gameplay, um, including terraforming, uh, we hope that people will still be able to do those things that they're used to doing. I guess there's another aspect to it. The, the one block at a time thing is that we kind of like the notion that if you if you want to clear out, if you want to dig out a whole chunk or you want to, you know, take a mountain apart or something, you might need to ask your friends for help. It might, it might become this big project, which could be kind of a reason to collaborate and a reason to have some fun together. So we don't want to make things too easy either. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially for people who are able to play in multiplayer environments. I think there's a lot of community spirit can happen around okay i want to hollow out this entire mountain i want to dig a perimeter for a redstone farm i want to you know clear out this area of the nether there's there's definitely a lot of good um you know community projects that can revolve around activities yeah. like that so 
yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I sort of feel like our correspondent from that question should talk to the person who emailed the show uh, that we read out earlier uh, that, yeah, that, exactly. that had no mountains for 1,500 <laughs> <Find> blocks. <the> <laughs> it's just, just swap yeah. the seeds around and uh, maybe you'll have a, a better time. And I've certainly found both. Like I, I, I generated a few worlds in Experimental Snapshot 2. The first one I found was Swamp as far as the eye could see and then some really sheer cliffs. And yeah, I saw that. I thought that. I was like, what the heck is ex- that? Exactly. And, that. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was like kind of Shattered Savannah generation, but at a, a more yeah. kind of plains level. And then, uh, you know, a few you know seeds down the line i came upon one that was like mostly mountains at spawn and it felt like you were never going to get out of them and so i think really it's going to be a matter of maybe re-rolling worlds more frequently to find the kind of spawn area that you want which i don't think has necessarily been an approach many people have taken from single player environments a lot of the time you generate a world and you just kind of go with what you've got but i do think with some of these it's going to be a matter of trying out a few different worlds and doing more of the hunting for world seeds that some folks do to yeah, well, well even that like well, when i play i prefer not to do that i prefer to take whatever i got but then i go exploring which is yeah. pretty much the same thing mm-hmm. so I just, I just keep running until they find the type of world i want yeah <laughs> and and it's it's just a matter of finding the stuff that helps you traverse that at this point but yeah. uh although i can say that, that that particular video that you did I, I, at the time i was really you know doing some terrain tuning at the time and i saw that and i was like oh those cliffs are really ugly so that video actually helped me to uh, round out those kind of cliffs so they'll be better in the next snapshot <laughs> that's great glad i could help because <laughs> i was like that, that shouldn't happen <laughs> it was funny well by the way i realized i lied about something just now i said that the players who don't like the deeper world or the higher mountains might have to uh, uh go back to an older version or get a mod but that's not true you could probably just get a data pack too because you know since we now have a world height that can be changed then that will be a data packable thing, most likely. Um, so that means you'll hopefully build a, not have to run, run a mod or another version. You could probably run the same version, but with the data pack to to get a world that is, you know, not as deep or not as many mountains. Yeah. Who knows? Or, or, the, or the alternative is, you know, it's something that might be tougher than <laughs> current computers can handle. I, I remember when that value first got exposed and everyone got very excited about the, the world height changing and people generating worlds that had a height of a thousand. you know, thousands and, and going, okay, my computer's not going to be able to handle this. What is Mojang yeah, planning? Like, you're, you're on your own now with that, right? Like... <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But but it's cool that the option is there. And I, I feel like with a, a lot of the times with technology these days, people are laying in stuff like that for the future and making games that are almost too good for current generation hardware or like the cutting edge hardware is just about able to play it because then in a couple of years time when the technology has gone on even further and we have you know faster cpus faster gpus people are going to have yeah. more opportunity to get hold of some of that stuff hopefully i guess i'm a little bit worried though. i don't i don't want minecraft to become the kind of game that forces people to buy new computers yeah no, of, time, of course of course and and i think that's that's one of the things that it's great to hear the team's still committed to making sure performance is optimized for for this uh this update because there are still people who are playing on decade-old hardware that played minecraft yeah. in beta and you know just aren't able to to move on to the newer versions so yeah and i guess that there is going to be i don't think it's going to be possible to make it work as fast because it just is a more complicated game now mm-hmm. there's more stuff going on yeah so it is going to be slower i can't imagine us making it the same as before but if we do i'll be very happy very surprised but hope, but I guess so. In my mind, it's really about can we at least minimize the difference, right? Yeah, yeah. And and at the same time, you need to be able to move the game forward and and make yeah. make moves like this, which are going to be so fundamental to to gameplay for you know the next however long. Yeah. To wrap things up, 
uh, and touch on something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, Henrik. Uh, I know after I played the experimental snapshot for the first time, I said to Johnny in a DM that this is the biggest thing to ever happen to Minecraft as far as I've been playing. Do you find that feeling rings true around Mojang these days? I, I would say yes, uh, both from a gameplay perspective, it just looks so different, but also from a technical perspective, it has been a huge thing to make this work. Uh, so in general, I think our feeling is that this is like any other future update is going to feel like a walk in the park <laughs> in comparison, <laughs> uh, or at least I feel so now naively. I might have to regret what I just said, but <laughs> it just feels so right now compared to other updates that this was just bigger. Yeah, and I, I think the team has also communicated that it's bigger. And I mean, even in stuff like, you know, the, the video about the split. But before that, when the Caves and Cliffs update was announced, um, everybody was talking about this being an update that you guys really wanted to talk to the community about and that it was an update that the community had effectively championed for this long, that it was uh, yeah. going to be very important to make sure the community was involved with the development of this. And I think yeah. this does now feel more so than ever before that it's it's such a big update and the community has such big involvement in it at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it's been, it's it's really cool. It really feels like the community is like an extension of the design team because people are so involved and giving us so useful feedback. Yeah, well, uh, we're going to have to wrap up here. But Henrik, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. This has been such a cool, uh, insightful and, and positive discussion. And I can't wait to hear what our audience has to say about some of the stuff you've uh, you've shared with us today. Uh, where can people go if they want to follow your work? And while you're here, is there anything you would like to uh, quickly promote? Um, well, I guess Twitter and YouTube, I guess, are the main channels where I put stuff. Um, so that, I guess that's where you can follow me. Um, and in terms of other things, I guess this is a very much unrelated thing, but uh, uh, I've worked a, a bit within this within climate change. Uh, you mentioned my startup, goclimate.com. But if you're curious about climate change, because it, it is a big deal and we're seeing more and more of the effects of it. Um, if, if you want to understand what it's all about, I made a video that really tries to explain it. Um, so the video is called uh, Friendly Guide to Climate Change. It explains why, what is, uh, where is the problem coming from? Why should we care about it? What can we do about it? And it tries to present a kind of holistic picture in a kind of entertaining format. Um, so use that if you just want to understand what's actually going on. That's awesome. And with uh, somebody who is obviously changing the world of Minecraft, obviously it uh, makes sense to want to change the world around us for the better. So that's that's really great. Um, thank you so much once again for being on the show. And that's going to wrap it up for this episode of The Spawn Chunks. You can find more information about the show and links to some of the stuff we talked about today, including all of Henrik's links at thespawnchunks.com. The music for the show was composed by me and The Spawn Chunks is proud as ever to be a listener supported podcast like we said at the top of the show if you're getting some value out of the show you can put some value back in by visiting patreon.com slash the spawn chunks you can join our community you can listen to the regular shows that we record live in our discord and pledging at any level gets you an invite to that discord where you can chat with other like-minded minecraft fans it also gets us closer to our monthly minecraft audio hangout goal where we would sit down every month with our patrons and just have a big chat about what everyone's been doing in minecraft lately our Patreon base is currently at 259, which is down seven from last week as Patreon goes through its monthly processing uh, shenanigans. But um, our last week's Patreon count was 266. We'd love to see that climb again as the month of August rolls on. We want to give a special thanks to our content engineers, General Pattern 82, Hunter555, Jumbo Sale, Magma Cube, and Yitz. Thank you so much for your support on this episode. 
Sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show. You can find us at The Spawn Chunks on Twitter and Instagram, but a personal recommendation is by far the best way to share the podcast. Just poke a friend in the arm from a safe distance and tell them where they can go to listen to The Spawn Chunks. Where might that be? On iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Really, wherever you can find a podcast. You can email the show at spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. The RSS feed is linked on the spawnchunks.com, and the patron-only RSS feed is on the Patreon page. That's where you can listen to the render distance the extended version of the podcast my name is johnny but online i go by pixel riffs you can find most of what i do at youtube.com slash pixel riffs where my empire's smp hardcore survival guide and rtx survival series are all ongoing i stream three days a week on twitch doing behind the scenes work for my youtube content and this week over on twitch i'll be co-commentating a hermitcraft twitch rivals event called hermit raiders that's going to be on thursday august 5th at 6 p.m bst 1 p.m est over at twitch.tv slash twitch rivals i've seen what they're doing for this event it is wild you don't want to miss this uh, aside from that i'm at pixel on both twitter and instagram joel where can people find you online everything i'm doing online including my illustration and design portfolio is at joelduggan.com you can listen to the sigil cafe my other podcast at the this week we are talking about masters of the universe revelation and what a new viewer should do if they're approaching the star wars saga you can check that out later on this week and of course you can follow me at joel duggan on social media and joel duggan on twitch where i am hopefully wrapping up this zombie geode farm this week on the citadel thanks for visiting the spawn chunks the world outside is infinite and the hills are alive with the sound of donkeys